Hello, my name is Samuel George London and welcome to Comics for the Apocalypse. On today's episode, I speak to comic book artist, writer and fantastically fun person, Paul B. Rainey, about what comics he would take into the apocalypse. But before we get into it, today is the last day of my most recent Kickstarter, Defend Milford Green. As I speak, we're 103% funded, but if you like the idea of Star Trek with a Victorian twist, then feel free to check it out by either searching for Defend Milford Green on Kickstarter, or by going to Signal Comics com forward slash defend. Now, without further ado, on with the show. Hello, Paul B. Rainey. How are you doing? Hi, Sam. How are you? I'm well, mate. I'm well. I'm, I'm uh, very happy to see some blue sky finally in our skies. How about yourself? Yeah, it's blue skies here in Milton Keynes. I like it when it's a bit more miserable, though. <laughs> oh, yeah. Make, makes life Not more dramatic. I, <laughs> I just like people staying indoors. <laughs> Fair play. If it's a blue sky, you know more people are likely to kind of venture outside and make noise. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. Yeah. I'm sorry, I'm just the way I am. That's <laughs> right, Paul, it's all good. Yeah. Uh, well, firstly, thank you so much for, for coming on Comics for the Apocalypse. It's a real pleasure. <laughs> thank you for having me. Oh, it's it's great. Um, and, and just to give some background, um, so you were one of our choices for for one of our other guests, Rachel Lee Carter. Um, and uh, then a Twitter conversation flared up from there, and then you agreed to be on the podcast, so thanks very much. Yeah, it happened quite quickly. I like any mentions I get from other people. I'm quite um, fragile and um, needy like that. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so for those that don't know uh, what do you do in the world of comics so currently I'm uh, write and draw a weekly strip that I post on social media Twitter, Facebook and my website and Instagram I tried Reddit for a while but that's not really worked out for me Mm. and the strip's called Why Don't You Love Me and I tried I tried to make it like an old style traditional it's not entirely traditional, but in this, in appearance, yeah. like that old style traditional Sunday strip you might have seen in newspapers twenty or thirty years ago. Mm. Um, I, I occasionally contribute to Viz. I'm a sort of a very ad hoc contributor to Viz comic. Um, I had a graphic novel out three or four years ago called "There's No Time Like the Present," um, and I have various self-published comics out called um, most recently crab which came out a few months ago uh, but also tells to diminish pope francis goes to the dentist book of lists i'm sure there's others i can't quite remember them all <laughs> i've been doing it for decades so um yeah so you got sometimes a lot i'll of find something I'm like, oh i did yeah. that sorry <laughs> you've got a lot of work out there that people can uh, peruse yeah yes definitely Definitely. And yeah, yeah you, you kind of come across stuff that you, you'd kind of forgotten about by the sounds of it. Not really, but occasionally I might kind of, oh yeah, I've got something in that, I won't chuck that out. <laughs> <laughs> That's great, fantastic. Uh, and where can people find you on the, on, the, on the interwebs? So my website is pbrainy.com and that's 
there's lots of content on there, including Why Don't You Love Me? And then um, Twitter is at pbrainy. Um, yeah, so th- those are two good places to find my stuff. And my shop is on my website. It's, uh, it's like a blogger-type website. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I don't use Big Cartel or anything, but all the, all the PayPal links work. So if, you, if anyone wants to buy anything, then, you know, feel free. Absolutely, check it out. Um, and yeah. all, of, all of those links will be in the show notes, so folks, oh, feel free to uh, click through right there and check it out as we're chatting. Um, and uh, as we're chatting, feel free to check out uh, Why Don't You Love Me on uh, on Twitter. Seems to be the best place for me. Um, cause you, got, also- you got the hashtag, uh, what was it? W-D-Y-L-M. Yeah, there you go. Uh, which has is, is, is recently was... been hijacked a little bit as yeah. well, hasn't it? <laughs> I was really annoyed when I started. It seemed to me that I was the only person using that hashtag, or that mm. maybe a couple, one or two other tweets were. But now loads of people are using it, which is slightly irksome. Because I've used it very carefully. Um, yeah. But I um, also should mention that Why Don't You Love Me also appears in David Lloyd's Aces Weekly. Yes, and it's due to return in the next volume, which I think starts either next week or the week after. So the ones I'm posting online are from are, were drawn a couple of years ago. And then for up-to-date episodes, Aces Weekly is the place to go. Fantastic. Great. Uh, well, um diverting from that uh that good news i suppose i do unfortunately have some bad news for you Um, and that is that there's actually been a super intelligent ape uprising um just down the outskirts of milton Keynes. i'm afraid um in kind of a a secret um secret laboratory um and uh they're starting to to take over the the entire UK starting off with Milton Keynes. So my uh, my first question for you is, what is your action plan for survival? Uh, well, I was thinking about this, and I don't think I'd really fight very hard. I think I'd be one of those <laughs> subservient humans. I think I'd be. I think I'd, this might reveal a bit too much about me, but I think I'd be all right in a cage for a bit as long as we've got a bit of space. <laughs> if they put me in the cage with Nova from the original. I think that was a character's right. name from the original Planet of the Apes film. That's That'd right. be all right. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. I think also I'm at an age now where getting dressed in the morning is a pain in the arse. So I'd be quite happy just <laughs> in a loincloth like Charlton Heston. Sure. I think I'd, I'd, yeah, I think I'd do all right. I think I might flirt with some of the lady scientists, chimpanzees. Why not? A bit of interspecies. And, <laughs> and I think if I wanted to walk around... I, I just have to, you know, I'm quite hairy. I think I just need to take a shirt off and I could pass for maybe nice. an underdeveloped ape rather than a hairy human. <laughs> so I think I'd be all right. I, I'm, I'm not really that bothered, really. I mean, is it going to no. be any worse than the real world now? Well, I'm not so sure. But <laughs> as uh, my answers to upcoming questions will probably reveal, um, I've probably lived with the kind of idea of a super eight take super intelligent eight takeover for uh, far too many decades 
<laughs> I mean, if they're super intelligent, yeah. the, the question implies that they're more intelligent than us. I'm imagining Planet of the Apes. Yes. Super intelligent. I'd imagine the super intelligent apes, by virtue of being super intelligent, what would come with that would be compassion and love for all other species anyway. So what do yeah, I have I to worry so. about? Yeah, that's a good point, you know. Um, but uh, If they were just shitty intelligent apes, that's a different matter. <laughs> but super intelligent, I'm okay with that. <laughs> should be all right, should be all right. Yeah. You'll, uh, uh, you'll be kind of, you'll, you'll work your way up through, through the uh, new ape society. These new super intelligent apes that the public transport system's improved... You know, um, <laughs> um, they've scrapped universal credit and bought in a more fair system. Yeah. For yeah, um, you, you can now retire at sixty rather than sixty-seven or seventy-five. Amazing. Yeah. Sounds like super a dream. I'm, a, I'm pro, pro super intelligent apes. Definitely, definitely, and 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 part of this because you're so pro, uh, pro super intelligent apes. Um, they they ask you to to the first super intelligent ape comic con, um, and and you're going to be interviewed on stage um, about uh, about comics. And the, and the first question that they ask you is, what is the first comic you remember enjoying? And uh, I'm afraid they might start to find me a bit patronising because uh, <laughs> it was actually Planet of the Apes, number four. Amazing. Because that's the first comic I ever bought from 19... I don't know how old you are, Sam, but I won't. You don't have to tell Mid-30s. me. Mid-30s. Oh, well, you weren't around then. So in, 19, <laughs> in the 70s, Marvel had Marvel UK where they reprinted the American material for, like, the British market, and they would just cut up American comics into quarters or thirds or halves and then create these anthologies. And in 1974, there was a Planet of the Apes TV show, so they decided to cash in on that and produce a weekly Planet of the Apes comic. And I bought number four, and I thought it was absolutely brilliant. I'd never bought a comic before in my life at that wow. point. I had no recollection of ever being exposed to one. And, uh, yeah, and the cover, I've got my copy here, features apes holding down a struggling, struggling human. And in the foreground, there's another human walking around who's obviously had some kind of brain surgery. He's got stitches along his head and his eyes rolling into the back of his head. And the guy's saying, no, unless I break free, they're going to turn me into a mindless zombie like him. I mean, I was seven years old. I thought that was the most exciting Incredible. thing I'd ever most exciting exotic thing I'd ever seen in my life so definitely yeah um it's a pretty rad my, cover because I've, I've I've looked at it and um yeah the, the the colors and everything is pretty striking isn't it the pose of the guy in the middle he's literally just got like a small loincloth <laughs> yeah well I think he's overdressed compared to because it, inside it's an, um, part of an adaptation of the first plan of the apes movie which i didn't even or wasn't aware even existed that time and um yeah when i would later watch the movie i think they were dressed even more scantily um so maybe they enlarged the loincloth for good taste but what's interesting (laughs) is i became a bit of a marvel fan later in the 70s Mm. and i sort of got a fondness for marvel 
comics. I don't read a great deal of them anymore, but I've great fondness for this period of Marvel comics. And sort of backup strips are like other comic strips like Kazar and people might call it Kazar and and, and um, Gulliver Jones is probably one of the more obscure Marvel type comic strips. And there's ads for Spider Man in there and Hulk and so the whole thing as an aesthetic was appealing to me. But I remember um, I would like reading speech balloons, but I hated reading the captions. So I would just read the speech balloons. Uh, and I did that for what was a long period of my comic buying when I was that age. And I missed half the comic as a result of that poor practice. Oh, no. And I also used to get my mum to read the comics to me, even though I was perfectly capable of reading them. Yeah. And my mum just couldn't get her head around what was <laughs> what, it was. what is going on. Because she thinks anything with an element of fantasy or the fantastical in it or unreality is just stupid. And she yeah. still does to this day. So me making her read Planet of the Apes to me is probably the worst thing I could have done to her. But yeah, that's where it all started anyway. Fantastic. And also each issue had the heading where man once stood supreme, now rule the apes. And I've always wanted to use that in something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah have, to, have, have you ever come up with anything? Or you still have well, I, was, I forgot. I did a comic called Crab recently, and it's got yeah. a giant a sort, of, a sort of grime artist, but it's a crab on the cover. Yeah, and I forgot to put where man once stood supreme, now stands crab. Oh, I thought that, and I thought that I really awesome. wanted to. I completely slipped my mind oh, no. by the time. Yeah, but never mind. You have to keep on working on that, on, that, on something else. Yeah, I'll have um, to wait for another opportunity. Yeah, definitely. Um, but just just for the listeners' benefit, um, this was a complete coincidence. So, like, when a guest comes on the show, they they send me a number between one and six, and then I roll a dice, and then I add them together in order to. Um, uh, to select a the apocalypse situation, and it is a complete coincidence that your first comment oh, yeah. of the ape. So this is complete coincidence. So yeah, it's, definitely, it's fate. <laughs> Apparently, are you in? Do you like Planet of the Apes? Oh, hundred percent. Um, I I never read the comics, um, but uh, yeah, very much into uh, into Planet of the Apes as a as a concept and everything. I think it's... Uh, it's it's nuts as well, though. That's the thing. And it's, but yeah. it's also kind of weirdly exotic. But it might be really exotic because I was seven when I first sure. encountered it. But it's something like being an ape that's just really appealing. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? Because, well, you know, when you, when you see a chimpanzee or any ape, any other ape, um, in a zoo, um, then you can just see... That you know they are very intelligent, and that you know they're clearly related to us. Um, you you yeah, think it wouldn't so. take much for us to be friends? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's very sad that you kind of you know that they are in zoos, obviously. But um, you know, um, I'm not going to be able to stop that anytime soon. No. Um, but um, go, going on on that choice um, at this time, so you're about seven. Um, are you? Are you? Uh, actively drawing at this point and trying to create comics or 
pretty yeah once i got into comics i, w- I was drawing a lot my dad mm. used to bring home piles of computer paper from his job and so once so it's all perforated down one side and had loads of impenetrable um, output on one side but on the other side obviously it was blank so we could and it was all connect um, although it's all perforated a big pile of it you could kind of create your own comics in a weird way yes yeah, so did a lot of drawing on that um i remember and yeah yeah i was always writing and drawing my own comics and trying to get other kids in the street to join in in making comics awesome. they were never really quite as interested no but you can have a passion for it yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And so, when was it that you thought that oh, this could actually be a career? Um, I never thought it could be a career, <laughs> <laughs> and it's never been a career. I have hoped it could, but yeah. um, so that was my stock answer when I was a kid. And people used to say, "Oh, what do you want to be when you grow up?" And I said, "I'd like to be write and draw comics." And they go, "Right." And uh, my grandmother once said. Um, uh, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, I'd like to write and draw comics. And then she said, yes, but what do you want to be when you grow up? Which I thought was really quite quite yeah. a devastating thing to be Very, told. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, it'd be a lovely way to earn a living. I don't think many people do, though, do they? Considering how many people are very good at comics. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And how talented, how... There are so many talented people making comics. Definitely, yeah. Um, yeah there's there's more of them, and hopefully in the in the coming years there will be more. But, uh, that's yet to be seen. But yeah, well, it's, it's probably a different subject, but or, but I think there isn't really a good enough infrastructure like there may have been in the 70s and 80s to enable people to make a living out of comics. And I think comics have become a bit more polarized in the type of content that gets out there so on one end you've got like the stuff that's big movie ties in tie-ins like the marvel stuff for example and then the other end you've got stuff I mean, this is generalization stuff that seems elitist and expensive to buy yeah and then really there ought to be a lot more stuff in the middle which is populist and cheap and affordable for people which I think exists was more commonplace in the, when I was younger even if it was mainly children that it was aimed at sorry yeah it's, it's an interesting uh, conversation and uh, I guess we've just got to work it out as a community in order to try and figure out how we can yeah fill in that middle bit um, and kind of get get more appealing content out there um, so that people will buy more comics I guess yeah yeah so I think I mean, people you know, are interested it, people yeah. in my experience are interested in them it's yeah. just they don't I guess encounter anything that appeals do, do you know what I mean that yeah that they think they would like yeah exactly 
Um, so, yeah, well, we'll uh, we'll keep working on that one. Um, but whilst, yeah. we're, whilst we're working on that, uh, the next question that comes up at the first Super Intelligent Ape Comic Con um, is, uh, what's the funniest or the comic that made you laugh out loud the most? Uh, well, I think I put Viz number 13. You did? Didn't I, in my answer? Because uh, I mentioned that because I always... I don't think I re-laugh out loud. I do laugh a lot, but I don't yeah. think I'm one who laughs out loud reading a book in a corner on my own or whatever. But I remember um, when I was about, I think this would have been when I was about 17, maybe 18. And my routine was I'd work in Milton Keynes and then once a month I'd get the train down to London and go to visit the comic shops, probably mainly Forbidden Planet in Denmark Street. And I'd buy all my comics for the month there and I'd get the train home. And my routine on the train home would be to peel the price stickers off the front of the comics because Forbidden Planet did that really annoyingly. <laughs> and on one occasion, I'd seen, I'd heard about Viz, but it wasn't nationally distributed at that time. I think it was mainly right. available in Newcastle and stuff. And it was seen as a fanzine, I think. Mm. And then... I saw a pile of them in, on that day. So I had some leftover from my normal purchases. So I bought that. And I was on the train thinking, well, what am I going to read first after unpeeling all the price labels? I'll read Viz. And within 10 minutes, I physically had to force myself to put it back in the bag because I couldn't stop myself laughing out loud. <laughs> and I was drawing attention from people around me, none of whom would have heard of Viz at that time. Um, yeah, I was, it, it just brings me great joy the memory of of reading that issue for the first time. Um, I remember also handing it round to my friends. So one of my friends, Nick, he was the only one who had a car at that time. Oh. So he'd pick us up and drive us down to the pub. And then I'd say to him, Nick, you've got to read this. It's the funniest thing. And he <laughs> loved it. And then it, and he passed it on to someone else. He didn't give it back, which I thought was a bit rude. Oh, that is he rude. passed it on, to, <laughs> passed it on to Julian, who read it and thought it's hysterical. And then I said to Nick, "Where's my copy of Viz?" And he said, "I gave it to Julian." And I said to Julian, "Where's my copy of Viz?" He said, "I gave it to Andy Moss." And then now one day, Andy Moss picked me up in his car, and it was Viz was in pieces in the back of his car. Oh no! He loved it. Yeah. It just got handed around so often. That and people didn't have the same sense of, you know, what's the word, preservation about yes, comics yes. that I I had. But um, yeah, it, it, it sort of spread pretty quick. We talk about how something might get a comic or a magazine might get bought by one person, but read by four people. I literally proved that to be true on this occasion, <laughs> and uh, yeah. I still think Viz is very funny. I'm, oh, I'm yeah. so lucky to have got into it, I think, yeah, well, when definitely. I have on the occasions I have done. Yeah, that is fantastic. Um, and I suppose my, my question to you on, on this is, do you have, did you manage to cut out the free super pair of Duran Duran paper underpants <laughs> that were inside? No. <laughs> I, always, I, I think that those sort of things I, I took as slightly more novelty kind yeah, of exactly. Clearly space fillers. <laughs> but what I do remember is I think in that issue they had a strip, a bif- the first time 
you, I don't know how familiar you are with his, but they were a character called Biffa Bacon. Yeah. And at that time, Biffa Bacon later went on to have a family. Right. Of Biffa Bacon was like a bully character. And it turned out that he was his father. He had a father who was worse, a nightmare of a bully, and his a mother as well. Really, sort of obnoxious working class bullies. But in this first strip I read, he was like a sort of skinhead version of Dennis the Menace, who mm-hmm. purposefully bullied a character called Cedric Soft, and he did things like ran a train into his head. You know, basically pushed his head through a wall, hit him with mallets, and they drew it in such a way that you could see the physical gore and repercussions of those actions. And I just remember laughing so much because I always felt that the Dennis, Dennis the Menace, well, the softy relationship dynamic was one of the bully and the, bu- the bullied. I think they've purposefully changed that now. But at the, when I, whenever I encountered the Beano in the late seventies yeah. or early eighties, that's kind of how I interpreted that dynamic. Dennis the Menace was the bully, and we, the reader, were supposed to enjoy watching him bully poor Walter, who really all he wanted to do was pick flowers yeah. and skip. And what was wrong with that? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. So it was great to see encounter a comic where there was at least a possibility of other people who shared my perception of that amazing um yeah and i mean i can imagine it kind of being just that clear connection that you get with a with a comic when you are kind of that age and reading it that oh somebody somebody's done it (laughs) yeah i made made a comic just for me but also, I mean, as a someone who does their own comics, and we mm. and we know a lot of people that might write and draw and publish their own comics. Fizz started out as a comic that was written and drawn and self-published by you know a pair of brothers in their bedroom, and existed as such like that for years and years before mm. ultimately being picked up by, I think it may have originally been Virgin but right. ultimately by John Brown Publishing and ended up selling million, being Britain's best-selling magazine even, or close to it, certainly top five yeah. for a long period. I mean, um, I don't think it's talked about by comic scholars often enough and highly enough in regards to its achievements. Yeah, definitely. Um, should definitely be talked about more and kind of been kind of given the, the respect it's due, I guess. Yeah. Um, but uh, I mean, the 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 cover that of the of the issue that you you picked is just classic Viz. Kind of, you know, it's it's got with added toilet humour. The strap <laughs> yeah. line is ma- makes other magazines look crap. Um, <laughs> you know, are you sexy? Find out more on page five and stuff like this. Like... Does it have um, a student price that's higher than the regular price on that one? No, I can't it remember. So it just has fifty no. p on there. But sometimes they went through a phase of like um, they'd have a fifty p cover price. Students pay seventy five p, which was 
So at that time, students were getting discounts and everything. And I think the people at Viz, who were obviously quite young themselves, were just getting annoyed by that sort of attitude. (laughs) It's like, well, you should pay more. more. (laughs) And yeah, oh yeah, you could could win one pound in our terrific vicar joke competition as well. Yeah. (laughs) Fantastic. Uh, it might have been that issue or around that issue where they had um, spit, uh, something about a photograph of a Spitfire inside. Because right. there was a lot of war comics from the 70s. Yeah. And um, when you turned to that page, it was just a, a sort of black and white shot of the sky with what could have been a Spitfire or somewhere in the middle somewhere. This sort of really obscure, blurred. Um, yeah. Very funny. Fantastic, fantastic. Um, so, uh, changing gears, um, the the next question that comes up is, what's the saddest or most upsetting comic that you've read? Well, I put The Love Bunglers by Jaime Hernandez. Mm. That, um, yeah, which um, I'm, big, I'm a big fan of Love and Rockets, but, but one of my big um, annoying boasts is that I bought issue one when it first came out on one of those trips to Forbidden Planet I mentioned when I just had a few quid left over and went oh I'll give something a go and um, I I really loved it from the very beginning and at that time I thought it was something that I have my taste being slightly more mainstream but at the time but hungry for something more Um, I was proud and surprised to, to have liked as much as I did. And um, so I've, I've had a, a bit of a turbulent relationship with Love and Rockets in a way because um, about 10 years ago I sold most of my collection because I was skint. Right. But I kept the first two issues and then I went, when things got better I re-bought them all on eBay. And I did a big reread a couple of years ago and that included reading... Um, those issues that Love and Rockets published every year for about seven or eight years. And in those issues was the um, Locust story, The Love Bunglers, which is itself, which by that point had already been collected as a graphic novel. Um, It's just brilliant. I just wept at it. I mean, proper, was proper broken. It's just full of pathos and... Um, heartbreak and not done in a sort of mawkish um, over you know way mm. it's it's quite it's told in that sort of pragmatic realist way that both Jaime and his brother Gilbert use although obviously it's a Jaime Hernandez um, story um, it, it, it's basically um, Maggie, the long-standing cat just develop, is developing a relationship with this guy at the same time that her, a, brother, a younger brother of hers from whom she's become estranged is in town and we're being told through bash flashbacks the experiences that um, Maggie and her brother had as siblings and a particular experience that her brother had that I 
I, I, my recollection is that nobody else is aware of, but explains everything behind the behaviour of these characters and the kind of fallout of that. And basically, the younger brother was sexually assaulted. Mm. And, uh, yeah, it's just... Yeah, I, I just found it to be quite... But the, the fallout of that is also sort of decades later is devastating and it's one of those things where you kind of you're shouting as an outsider going oh why don't you just tell someone or what if only they could do this do you know what i mean yeah but you know also from a toy storytelling point of view that that wouldn't happen Mm. but you're wishing that it would you're wishing the story would allow for these things to occur and yeah um i i I don't know if anyone's listening who may never have read love of rockets and might be interested and find perhaps getting involved in it intimidating as it's been running for uh 35 years i think um but i would recommend buying a love bungalows or reading the love bungalows if you can because it's just i'm it works on its own. It's just yeah. brilliant, absolutely devastating. Standalone story. And looking at the uh, Amazon pages, like it's 114 pages, so it's a, it's a decent size. Yeah, well. and Jaime Hernandez is such a craftsman. He's such a perfect comic storyteller. You can learn if learn so much from him. I think as a you know on on every level, I mean, even the subtlety of um, expression and subtlety of emotions is um, again, again um, I think uh, we've talked about one of the questions I, I know I've got coming up is about people who are underestimated in mm. comics I think most people in comics are underestimated yeah. I think we need to appreciate Love and Rockets and the Hernandez brothers um because we're so lucky to have them. They're just brilliant. Awesome. Um, yeah, and, and reading the, the blurb there, um, it does it, it sounds absolutely heart-wrenching, all of this. kind of. Yeah. It says that the initial thread is, is about the suppression of family history. Um, and, uh, you know, I think most people can probably relate to that, that, you know, at some point, you know, there's been su- suppression of something within the family and then it bubbles to the to the top and then it just you just have massive fallout from that sort of thing but what's also interesting is to have read it and you understand the actions of every character involved in it do you know what i mean so even when the vulnerable kids might have been hoping for perhaps some intervention from an adult Mm. and that doesn't arrive you know why it doesn't arrive it's yeah and there's, there's no shortcuts in the storytelling or characterization or it's yeah it's just amazing and um i think we talk about great comics that people acknowledge as being brilliant like from hell perhaps or mouse or jimmy corrigan mm-hmm. the advantages that those collections perhaps have is that they don't exist within 
um, broader thing. I mean, there wasn't 112 issues of Victorian era styled comics by Alan Moore and Eddie Campbell in the middle of which From Hell existed and therefore may have got lost. Do you know what I mean? The Love Bunglers by virtue of being in the middle of Love and Rockets. It's unfortunate in a way that it can't be lifted out and appreciated on its own terms in the way that we appreciate, you know, from Hell and Mouse and and Jimmy Corrigan. Definitely. So uh, definitely go check that out. Um, So the next question that comes up is what's the scariest or most horrifying comic that you've read? I said Barefoot Jen, didn't I? You did. And uh, um, by uh, Keiji Kakazawa. <laughs> That's my pronunciation. Yeah, Nakazawa, I think it might be. Yeah. Thank you. Um, um, Barefoot Jen, in the 80s, I mean, I don't consider myself someone naturally predisposed towards manga because um, I didn't, my first 10 years of reading comics, I didn't really see any manga at all around. And then it started to kind of filter through into mainstream comics in the 80s. And even then, when they published manga in English language, they published it like American comics. So you'd get like 20 pages a month, which is not how even Japanese people experience it. They get a big wad of it in one go, don't they? Yeah, exactly. Um, So, but in the late 80s, Penguin Books published or um, two volumes of Barefoot Gen um, and then stopped. And I read those two volumes then. And then I think about the start of the 2000s, I think it's Last Gasp said, we're going to do all 10. And they published all 10 over a period of years. And I wasn't able to get all 10 of them until I think it was last year. And last year I read them in uh, sort of over a period of a few weeks. And they're Mm. just absolutely brilliant. Basically, um, the author was present in real life when they dropped the bomb on Hiroshima in 1945. And um, it's his story of what he experienced and what people around him experienced. It's not entirely biographical because Barefoot Jen is, although a version of the author, mm. Barefoot Jen experiences things other people have experienced, if that makes sense. Because the yeah. purpose of the, the story is to, um, or the, the motivation of the author is to convince people to you know, we don't want to go down this route ever again. Do you know what I mean? This is what actually happened. Um, I find it amazing that someone who lived through that would then one day decide to go, I'm going to chronicle in comics what I went through. I think that's one of the most heroic things I can can think of anybody ever doing. Um, I'm awestruck by that. And, but also it's just a great, great read the first volume i think is about 100 odd pages at least and they don't drop the bomb to the end and i'm crying every 10 pages and it's not even happened yet because they're living the war and having a tough time and the character of jen lives in a family 
who are anti-war and um, disapprove of the emperor, which is pretty much against um, what Japanese society in general is supposed to be like and what their neighbours are like. So they're having a really difficult time as it is. On top of that, they can't get enough food to feed the children. You can't get work. And then, of course, the bomb drops and it gets significantly worse. Um, Yeah. But what's also interesting is that as the books progress, their lives start to improve again. And although there's a lot of heartbreaking events there's sort of glimmers of hope so that by volume 10 you kind of think you know things could get better but then of course i'm reading it in 2018 and trump is president of the united states (laughs) and boris johnson's going to be prime minister around the corner and um, extinction rebellion are kind of on the rise and you kind of think it's unfortunate that He's gone to all this trouble writing and drawing 10 volumes of Barefoot January. Yeah, when we're just going it's to made history. no <laughs> difference whatsoever. <laughs> but it's exactly. given me an idea of what to expect when it all kicks off. Yeah, exactly. So get your uh, Fallout shelter ready. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Prepare yourself to wander down the street watching your neighbours walking around naked with their skin hanging round their ankles. <laughs> Holy smokes. I mean yeah, it's written it was written and drawn for kids as well. It's meant to be they, right, they yeah. put, I mean it's it, it doesn't conceal or hide the awfulness of what happened, but at the same time it's it's meant for children. You don't I don't read it, it's read it. I think it's. I think kids should be made to read it. Everyone should be made to read this book. Yeah. You know, this and Mouse and Charlie's War. I don't know if you've have you ever read Charlie's, Charlie's War. War? Charlie's War, no. Charlie's War uh, was a strip that ran in uh, war comic, British war comic in the early eighties by Pat Mills and um, sorry, I can't mm. remember the artist's name. But recently got collected in three volumes, mm. and the sort of. The, the visceral anger and and, and uh, intelligence is set in World War One. Mm. Um, it's just you know you can really feel the anger in it, and what's also infuriating is that nothing the, the sort of attitudes that led to the situations that these real characters or real like characters are in. Nothing's really changed. Yeah, humans will make the same mistakes again and again. Um, well, technology, technology we can't afford to. But, <laughs> no, this, is, yeah. Yeah, this is the other thing. I mean, the problem is, I guess, that technology improves and the weapons get bigger and bigger, but we make the same mistakes. Um, yeah. So the stakes get bigger and bigger as well. So that's gonna. It's, we, we've got some interesting decades ahead of us, I think. <laughs> but it's, I think it's good that there are comics and and I wish there yeah. were more comics that didn't kind of, that had that sort of anger, that kind of, we need to yeah. see if we can play a role in changing things. And I don't feel that there's enough of those currently out there. Right. Yeah. Including myself, including the ones <laughs> I make. 
<laughs> no problem. Um, well, maybe that's uh, something that we can work on to try and fill in that middle bit that we were talking about earlier. Yeah. Um, so yeah. We've just got to make it, give it mass appeal <laughs> somehow. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, so, um, moving on to uh, one of our new questions, and that is, what is your favourite cover? Oh, this is one of those that I've I've been asked this before, and I'm always um, so I did something I think for a Forbidden Planet blog a couple of years ago, and then right. um, um, Broken Frontier asked me this as well, and uh, I did Love and Rockets cover for Broken Frontier, I think, and then. Um, I think it was a Marvel UK cover for Forbidden Planet blog, and I'm always going. I'm always, my first instinct is to always go. Um, you're younger than me, so you may not remember this, but in the late seventies, Marvel UK started featuring artwork by British artists, right. and they would get like covers drawn by a guy called Paul Neary, who seemed to draw Marvel characters in a way that I found really liberating so my first instinct is always to go find mm. a Paul Neary cover from that period but then I went no I've done that before and there are other art covers I like yeah. more, just as much so I chose um, 8 Ball number 18 right. um, by Dan Clowes yeah um, which is a it's, it's a fold I, 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 I want to hear, hear you explain this one because it's pretty wild. It's, it's, it is wild. <laughs> it's got what looks like a um, a wind up toll toy robot with a kind of a fairly realistic looking human face yeah. inside, as if it's being driven by the human inside. The face is slightly too large for the proportions of the robot, no, yeah. implying that you're sort of trapped and there's a, and. Um, he might look like he is trapped inside there. It's shooting weird beams out from the robot. He's banging a drum. As well, so of course. Ply, it implies that he's a toy, but he's also shooting like a gooey gun over residents, yeah. which all of whom seem to be naked, um, um, some of whom aren't covered in the gooey goop yet. I think it's sexual because there's a picture of what looks like a worm with an eye on it coming out of a bird's nest. Yeah. Or not a bird's nest, but a box in a tree, a bird, a tree house. Um, and then he's uh, thinking um, there's an insert of a man who looks like he could be um, maybe some uh, psychologist or something. Yeah. <laughs> With a he's, he's Freudian, a isn't he? Yeah, he looks very Freudian. And, yeah, but I, I just love the cover because it's, you know, it's really quite a colourful cover by Dan Clow's standards, I think. Yeah. And I've always liked Dan Clow's stuff anyway. But I have a special fondness for this cover because when I worked, when I've done desk jobs, I've used this as my wallpaper. Right. So it stopped me from get, getting too depressed in my day-to-day job by having this as my wallpaper. It's quite, quite a, a, um, a warming um, thing to look at before someone tells me off usually or has a go at me. <laughs> Why are you reaching your targets? Something yeah. Like yeah. You've let me down um, again, Paul. I oh, thought you no. were going to do this thing. Yeah. <laughs> Well, um, I can see that because, 
it's kind of I don't know, it just draws you in trying to work out what exactly is going on. There's lots of activity and you kind of go, I don't, I'm sure it doesn't really mean anything, but it's quite good fun. It's just, yeah, it's just good fun. I think there's some genitals in there kind of concealed as well, which is not concealed, but not too overtly obvious. I think they exist on the fold. Right, I see. um, see. Yeah. Um, and, um, I've, I, I've never come Sorry. across eight ball. So, what? what? What's what's eight ball about? Have you heard of um, the film Ghost World? Ghost World, no. Okay, so that's a uh, Scarlett Johansson was in it when she was probably about fifteen or sixteen, and that's an oh, adaptation okay. of a strip from Eight Ball. Right. Um, Dan Klaus. It's basically yeah, da- uh, uh, Dan Klaus, who. Um, yeah, he's a, I guess he's an independent comic artist. Yeah. He's had a few films made out of his comic strips since then. So he's had Art School Confidential yeah. was one, and then more recently Wilson from a couple of years ago that had Woody Harrelson in. But Ghost World is the one that everybody likes or has um, the highest regard. And he's... He, um, so prior to Eight Ball, he did the comic called Lloyd Llewellyn, which was his sort of, um, uh, I guess, it, uh, um, I always think of it as like a sort of 50, hipster 50 style detective thing, which would occasionally yeah. have these sort of oddball um, things happening where sort of weird 50 styled aliens might pop up, for example. And then I think he decided to launch Eight Ball which was is more of an anthology of strips and ideas. And um, one of the strips that ran in it was the aforementioned um, Ghost World. Ghost World yeah. This is about two teenage girls sort of hanging around town, being sarcastic about everything. And, um, yeah, and I think these days, Eight Borders sort of ceased to exist and he tends right. to just have graphic novels published but Dan Klaus is yeah I really like his stuff I recommend it yeah if you definitely if you ever encounter a Dan Klaus book in a library I really recommend taking it out you I think you'd like it yeah yeah no doubt because that that cover really kind of yeah um makes me intrigued because you know he's not trying to you know he's having fun he's kind of of being a bit He's kind of going, right, I'm chucking everything in here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, that's a good laugh. He's, yeah, he's not doing it to be to alienate you. Nah, definitely not. Fantastic. No. Um, so, uh, we come on to one of our most interesting questions, and that is, what is the most meaningful comic to you? Oh, I said Peanuts, didn't I? You did. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I grew up in a Daily Mail house. My dad has bought the Daily Mail every day of my life. And the only thing that was the redeeming fact thing about the Daily Mail is that they ran the peanut strips in it every day. And um, I, firstly, I'm, I'm impressed by something that could run for 50 years and be written and drawn every day, theoretically. Yeah. by the same person, Charles Schultz, for 50 years. But I also think it's incredible that something became so hugely popular and so mainstream, which is really just about 
children who are depressed. Yeah. I mean, we talk a lot, a lot about mental illness these days and stuff, and it's becoming more, more um, acceptable to talk about these things. But yeah. Charlie Brown and Peanuts was probably talking about that yeah. sadness and depression that's inherent in many of us. You know, since nineteen fifty, and and identifying really what's important in our lives, which is you know, friendship and love and the love imagination and and kind of learning to have a sense of humour about yourself, which I think is also one of the lessons from Peanuts, even though Charlie Brown doesn't give the impression he has a sense of humour about himself by laughing yeah. at bad things, disappointing things that occur to him. You kind of know that he does. I think that's it's kind of implied that he does. Um, yeah, I also mentioned it because I, I think I'm thinking a lot about it whilst doing. Why don't you love me? Because mm. doing that Sunday strip format again, which I'm I guess I'm referring to those sort of Sunday strips. That the Peanuts Sunday strips rather than the daily strips, and also absolutely fascinated by the idea of how people, how someone my age encountered how you would if you found something you really liked that had been running for a while. When I was younger, get, getting earlier versions of that early episodes of that was difficult or impossible so say you discovered peanuts in 1974 it'd been running for 24 years by that point Incredible. you know all you the best you could hope for were these book collections that they published but they didn't publish them in chronological order they just published them in in a kind of random way and so therefore if you were a completist you were never going to achieve that. Um, it's the same with TV programmes you might have liked. Like I got into Seinfeld around season five or six, but um, the only way I could watch earlier episodes are videotapes my friends made, which weren't labelled properly. So I watched in the wrong order, and there were big episodes missing. And yeah. Whereas today, if you discover, say, something new that's been running for a couple of years... You tend to be able to watch it on Netflix or yeah. or Amazon Prime. You've got it all there you watch it from the be- Exactly, you watch it from the beginning in strict easy. order. Yeah. And you're not having to work out work out where what happened and when. And I won't say that's a right or wrong. I just think it's an interesting contrast and so when I'm doing Why Don't You Love Me, that's kind of one of the things I'm thinking about is I'm interested to not make it difficult for people to catch up on who get into it later on, but (laughs) I'm interested to hear how people who might get into it now it's been running for a year, how they read the earlier ones, or even if they bother to read the earlier ones, or what their relationship with it is. And... And it's sort of slightly contrary to how entertainment is 
tend to be presented to us in the 21st century. I, I, um, it's, it's, it sounds off. I think that's why I gave peanuts as the answer is that I'm thinking about it a lot more than than perhaps I might normally do. But it's mm. such beautifully, so beautifully drawn, and we're very fortunate that Fancy Graphics reprinted them all. Um, I think they continue to keep them in print, so you can now have that Netflix experience where you start at the beginning and read them in strict order. Right. But it's not really constructed in that way. It's not a right, huge right. narrative. Yeah. Pardon? It's, a, it's episodic. It's not kind of serialised. Exactly, uh, yeah. And, I mean, things happen. I think um, um, a baby may get born and then within a year they're old enough to interact with all the other characters and then, yeah. you know, that's it. Everyone, everyone stops ageing. Uh, uh, but uh, and there are sort of short run stories within stories that kind of fade in and fade out but um, yeah um, then it's not something you really need to really suit to order unless you're interested to see how the art style changes or mm. see how quickly it, it develops its voice um, I have read I have read them all now wow they're Gosh, they're brilliant. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah, but it's so it's brilliant. Incredible. It's right, just yeah, so good. Sure. Amazing. Um, and when, it, when, it, when, it, when did you get into peanuts? Then? Well, it, that's the thing because it's all—it had always been around. Yeah, yeah. Of you didn't. You don't see yourself as something getting into it. You accept it as just there. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Sure. And it isn't until it goes that you go. Oh, the the world is suddenly less for that. Mm. Like. Um, I always say I think the world took a big <laughs> like descent um, when uh, Robin Williams died. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Well, that's when everything yeah. changed. Yeah, uh, and that's when Chuck when Peanuts stopped being when they stopped making new peanuts. I mean, I know they made a film a couple mm. of years ago, and that was an okay film. But yeah. it's not Charles Schultz, do you know what I mean? Right. It's not really peanuts. And so the world is a lesser place for its absence. And yeah, very sad. But I think it's the fact that you, you did a comic strip about children who fundamentally are depressed. I mean, that's incredible, don't you think? 100%. Um, kind of dealing with all those issues through it um, at a time when, yeah, as you say, not really kind of spoken about, but he managed to kind of get it under the radar. Um, and and that's why it's probably, you know, one of the most read comics on the planet, probably. But I, I, that's the, the amazing thing, though. I don't think he thought of it as getting it under the, the radar in that sense. No, I'm maybe you're right, yeah. I don't think he thought of it as being subversive. I think he yeah. thought of it as being truthful yeah. and uh, and the, the and somehow it just caught on with more and more people so it might have been just available through a, a smaller number of newspapers and as it became apparent that these people in these newspapers who don't well it was selling more copies because of this comic strip about these depressed kids they probably didn't sell it that way. No, they were able not. to syndicate it more widely. 
do you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I, I don't, I think there are, you can, I think you can, one can spot a purposefully subversive strip, but I don't think this was purposefully subversive, but I think yeah. it is subversive, or I think it's more, actually that's not true, I think it's just amazing, necessarily true, I just think it's amazing that it existed and the fact that it proved so popular, I think, says everything about the achievements of being truthful when you create art, maybe. 100%. I agree. I lost confidence with myself as I was saying that sentence. No, but it absolutely <laughs> you, you shouldn't because it absolutely makes sense. Um, and uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great um, kind of role model i guess is the best way to say it that yeah be honest with your storytelling um in whichever way that you do that whether it be with words pictures or both um and uh yeah the truth shall set you free <laughs> people a lot of people resented peanuts i think by the time oh, yeah, say did. the 80s because yeah. you couldn't move for like stuffed snoopy toys and oh, right. that sort of thing and i don't yeah. think charles schultz had really any sense of I think I think he may have had some control sure. but I didn't think he was bothered about exercising that control because I think his interests lay mainly in drawing the comics and then maybe helping with the the car the special TV specials that they did yeah. which is fine I suppose but it, the sort of ubiquitousness of the merchandise shouldn't put people off the quality of the core, okay. the core, I would say products, it's a bit of an ugly word, but you know what I mean, the core. For sure, well, arts. that's the corporate machine, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, even if you are the original creator, if it's kind of, if there is a corporate entity that is involved, that's going to happen. Um, but it doesn't take away the kind of the achievement of the actual, uh, the actual creation, I guess. Um, or, no. or at least it shouldn't. Um, and people shouldn't kind of judge it based on kind of the the corporate element of kind of, yeah, selling merchandise, I guess. Yeah. I mean, there's always going to be someone who who's not nearly as talented who sees an opportunity to make money. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I'd have done it. If I, was, if I was Charles Short, I'd have done more, more stuffed toys. Yeah, exactly. Get them out there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd have sat back and got other people drawing it. Yeah, exactly. Gonna Smoking cigars. That. Yeah, straight up. And uh, sipping rum. Um, but, yeah. <laughs> yeah. In Cuba. Yeah. Um, so, uh, we uh, we move on to our next question. Uh, and that is, what is the most underrated comic that you've read? Um, well, I think most comics are underrated, but I yeah. chose one that I, I would like I think everyone should read if they can which is a graphic novel by my friend Robert Wells it's called Back Sack and Crack and Brain it was published a couple of years ago by Box Brown I think they're called I haven't got my reading glasses on I think it's them uh, uh, yeah Little Brown sorry Box Brown's a cartoonist I think isn't he and um, yeah it's he did um, uh, he suffered with illness uh physical illnesses well um for years and years decades even yeah. 
right. and he decided to um, turn it into his experiences into a graphic novel and his experiences are basically getting frustrated with um, doctors and hospitals in diagnosing what his problems were and his problems were basically centred around his back his testicles and his uh, backside so um, hence the name yes uh, yeah but he goes into he read it it's very it sounds like it could be a depressing book but it's actually a very funny book because he doesn't hold back on any of the uh, undignified experiences he has or um or uh, or, or, or um or, or any of the detail he's quite happy will draw himself um having a uh, end, uh, endoscopy is that what, what it's called? That rings <laughs> a bell, but I'm, yeah. I'm looking at a panel right now where he's lying oh, on the he... table with his trousers off, and there is a what well, is probably a doctor with a large drill, um, yeah. ready to do an examination. I guess I think that's a metaphor. So, I yeah, don't yeah, think yeah I don't think he had a large drill. I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> would have been, yeah, I would sue the uh, the doctor that did that. <laughs> Well, I'm actually but, looking yeah. at a copy of the, the book now, and I've turned right. to page um, 20, and there's his t- genitals. Um, I think he always draws them smaller than they actually are. Right. And then uh, on page 21, there's a doctor holding his testicles and prodding them. And they, they seem to be drawn with such relish. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible. It's not like he's, he skimmed over it. He's kind no. of going, well, if I'm going to draw him, I might as well draw it properly. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. It's got a very humorous art style as well. It's got a very yeah. clean line to it. Mm. And he's, a, again, a very good at um, drawing smaller emotions as well as big emotions. And he's also a very good writer. He's got... Uh, he's, you know, he's, he's a very well written yeah. graphic novel. He's a he's a triple threat, <laughs> he except is. for um, unless you want to kick him in, kick him at the base of the spine if it gets <laughs> if it gets too threatening. <laughs> but yeah, I really recommend it. It's one of the most enjoyable things I've read. Fantastic, um, and it's over two hundred pages by the looks of it as well. So it's pretty, it's very sizable. Yeah, it's it's good value for money. Yeah, that's for sure. Good value for money. Um, yeah. Everyone should read that. I'm, I think it's one of those things where um, he found a proper publisher and then it may have gotten lost amongst their other output and it's perhaps not received the um, yeah. promotion it, it should have done. And, and yeah, I, I don't know. There seems to be a lot of sort of medical type um, graphic novels out there. There seems to be a subsector sec, section of you know, graphic novels about medicine and people's illnesses. But, um, yeah, the back sack and crack and brain is uh, one of my favourites, I think. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, and so we come on to one of my most difficult questions, and that is for you, what is the best comic of all time? Um, oh, I have 2000 AD, the first 10 years worth. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> I should have brought my list with me, shouldn't I? It's, yeah. yeah. You nailed it. I forgot that, I forgot that one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think the first 10,000 years of 2000 AD, 
yes. were absolutely brilliant. And um, yeah, because. Are you, are you a two thousand AD fan, or have you I've, been? I've, I've, no, not not massively. Um, I've I've read a, a few here and there, but I was because um, you wouldn't have uh, heard it on the previous podcast. But I'm fairly new when it comes to comic. I only got into it about five years ago. Okay. Um, so yeah, I, I didn't have the kind of the experience of having read two thousand AD uh, and everything when I was younger. So. So 2013, when it first started, you just—I mean—you could walk into any news agents and buy it. It was printed on newsprint. I mean, the, yeah. the, the printing quality wasn't particularly great, and um, it came after a comic that IPC had published a year or two before called Action that had caused that had caused a lot of controversy because it, even though it was aimed for boys, you know, and yeah. 14 and under. It contained um, sort of excessive violence and um, it, it caused uh, a lot of upset in the tabloid newspapers and the Guardian newspaper and ultimately ended up, it got muted and ultimately um, cancelled because no kids didn't want to read it anymore. Now it wasn't violent. Mm-hmm. 2000 AD came along to cash in on what was anticipated to be the Star Wars craze. Yeah. I think it came out pretty much nearly a year before Star Wars came out in this country because in those days films would take years to get released internationally so we knew it was coming just hadn't arrived but IPC published 2000 AD and it utilised basically it featured a lot of the um, um, contributors and staff from Action who brought that ultra-violent attitude to it but they could get away with it because it was robots. Do you know what I mean? And aliens exactly. and monsters yeah. and not human beings. And um, those dead early issues had um, brought back Dan Dare, who was a kind of clean-cut superhero from Eagle from the 50s, mm. who would get written about in mainstream newspapers as an example of the best comic character ever, any ever although you as a comic reader would go, that's bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) And then in 2000 AD, he was a pretty cool character because he kind of, it was dirty and and weird and featured this bizarre artwork by a guy initially called, an Italian artist called Mesimo Bellardinelli, and then had the version of uh, the Six Million Dollar Man who was called Mac One who um, got, his, got his super strength through acupuncture, it seemed. That's my recollection. Right. <laughs> and, had all these kind, and these were kind of like UK-based... I, I talked about Charlie's War earlier. Yeah. Um, and they had that sort of visceral qualities that I described as existing in Charlie's War. And um, again, also, there's something... And then Judge Dredd... 2000's most famous character made his first appearance in issue two and um, th- there was a period of I think hyper creativity in that comic during its first ten years or so when it defied its expectations and by being printed on newsprint and costing something like 12p being absurdly cheap and yet every strip was just perfect you'd have like Rogue Trooper, which was a comic strip about a future infantry man, and Robo Hunter, which was a kind of 
uh, a guy whose job it was to hunt down rogue robots and everybody who wrote and drew these strips seemed to be writing and drawing these strips as if they were never going to be writing and drawing a comic strip ever again. Do you know what I mean? There was no sort of idea that they would one day get to revisit these ideas that they're contributing. The sort of generosity of ideas was pretty impressive to me. And, of course, Judge Dredd has now been there for 40 years. But, you know, by issue 120 of 2000 AD, I'm pretty certain John Wagner, who was the co-creator of Judge Dredd, couldn't really have foreseen that he still might be writing Judge Dredd 40 years later. Do you know what I mean? Of course. And so even Judge Dredd never seemed to be re-encountering enemies it's, there seemed to be just fresh new ideas for stories for Judge Dredd and then in addition to that new ideas for stories as backup strips like uh, Slain for example came along after a while uh, and that I, I, I think that sort of creativity and, and ideas and it, it is something I still remain in awe of. But on top of that, there was the way they told the stories is great. It's not, there was no real protraction or filling. It was great. It was great, just really strong storytelling going on and artwork that was so good that defied the quality of its reproduction. They didn't need to draw the strips as well as they did because the reproduction wasn't always good enough to replicate that. Yeah. But they did it anyway. They didn't know in the dead early days that one day they might get reprinted in nicer volumes. They thought that would be it. It would be out in the shops for a week and then disappear. I, you know, So um, I'm ranting a bit, sorry. But, uh, That's quite all right. Um, I think, awesome. Yeah. Uh, also, I think 2000 AD defied its expectations in a way, so it knew that it had to deliver comic strips that its core audience, which typically would have been boys 14 and under, mainly under, so that meant that those strips had to be kind of um, imaginative, exotic, visceral, exciting, well-drawn, well-written, strong stories. But on top of that, often they were satirical in a way that you wouldn't expect strips aimed at that age group to be. So they, you know, they satired sort of Thatcher's government, for example, or or um, the, the sort of nuclear threat that we all lived under at that time but were more aware of at that time um do, do you know what i mean they were yeah. there's a lot more satire media satire going on and i maintain i believe rather that the comedy of the 90s i think um by which i mean british comedy of the 90s that we used to get on our tvs from sort of day to day to father ted to mm. 
um, I think a lot of that was actually influenced by the humour of 2000 AD in those first 10 years and should, and its cultural impact extends beyond some tenuous association with modern Marvel films. I think it impacted British culture more significantly than we give it credit to. And I still think that even though I don't buy it weekly now, I still buy the ad hoc collections that 2000 AD publish. I still think there's elements of that. I think now it knows that it can, it's got, got um, content it can push out into other mediums. It's just not been particularly successful at doing that yet. So that sort of, so that that initial flurry of mad creativity doesn't exist, but it still has that principle of, you know, we're going to have Judge Dredd in it, but the backup strips, we will have a new backup strip in it. They could have just filled the comic with characters they know everyone likes. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Definitely. But they purposefully choose not to, it seems. And that is brilliant. They're, they're looking, for, still looking for those new ideas, and I think that's something that needs to be, that should be admired. Hundred percent, that's fantastic. Um, and uh, if you could only take one comic into the apocalypse, which would it be? Well, I'm cheating. I'm going to say the first ten years were one comic. You mean as in title the collection? Yeah, yeah. I'll go like first ten years, two thousand AD. Amazing. That's going to be. I uh, could just read those, and then once I've finished them, I'll go. I'll go back to the beginning and read them all again. I can quite happily do that. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a great choice. Um, and um, with alongside the the first ten years of two thousand AD, uh, what weapon, tool, or useful item would you like to take in with you? Oh yeah, um, I probably had a really good answer to this. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think um, having uh, my Planet of the Apes comics with me in the ape in apocalypse, that's what we're talking about, isn't it? Yes. It has to be the ape apocalypse. I think um, apes would be intrigued by the idea that the ape apocalypse had been foretold in comics I've got, and they might that might ingratiate my, me to my new ape master's because I've got these comics. I mean, they could forcefully take them from me, but it doesn't help them with the question, how were you able to foresee the ape apocalypse yeah. with all these comics you've got? I think that would give me some kind of brain-breaking power. Do you reckon? Yeah, I'd say so. Um, would hopefully... Or um... a machine gun. They didn't seem to have machine guns. <laughs> No, they seem to have not. like those that had rifles, but yeah, no, not not interested in machine guns or any sort of assault I'm, rifles. I'm not very violent. I don't think I'd be very good at um, shooting apes. No, I'd, I'd I'd go with a collection of the uh, Planet of the Comic, uh, Planet of the Comics, Planet of the Apes comics, <laughs> Planet, of the, Planet, of the, Planet of the Comics um, for apes. <laughs> there you go. Fun. That could be your one of your apocalypse questions. There you go. The whole planet has now turned into a place full of comics, and you need to buy an apple. 
Sorry, sorry, Sam. I'm oh, talking all right, bollocks cool. now. Nah, it's all good, mate. Um, it's all it's all good fun. Um, fantastic. Um, well, um, thank you so much for sharing your comics for the apocalypse today, Paul. Thank you for having me. Sorry if I've uh, rattled on. Not at all. Um, more the merrier, basically. Um, and uh, really, really good fun to uh, to speak to you today. Um, and for for the listeners, one more time, where where can they find you? Um, I've got a website, um, www.pbrainy.com, um, and Twitter, pbrainy, at pbrainy, um, yeah, I think that's it, yeah. I've got loads of content on my website, though, so, and my Twitter feed, so... Definitely check it out. Check it out. Oh, 100%. And again, those those links from the show notes. So feel free to click through. Um, and then do you have any events coming up? No. Um, no. I've decided I'm only going to do events that I'm invited to. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I'm fed up with paying for tables. Yeah. So um, if you want me to appear at your event, I'm more than happy to. You just have to ask. <laughs> you just have to ask. Yeah, exactly. Quite all right. Fantastic. Um, well, uh, again, Paul, thank you for, for sharing your comments for the apocalypse. Thank you, and, Sam. Uh, yeah, um, I hope uh, our paths cross one day. Thank you. Cheers, mate. Excellent. See ya. Bye. Bye. Thanks again to Paul for being on Comics for the Apocalypse. I had an absolute riot. If you enjoyed the show today, please leave a review for us on iTunes or whichever podcast service you use, as not only will it let me know that you liked it, but I believe that it helps make other people aware of the show as well. If you'd like to check out Paul's work or follow him on social media, those links are in the show notes, along with all of our own links to the various areas of the internet. And finally, as long as the apocalypse doesn't come to pass in the next week, I'll see you next Monday. Bye for now. <laughs>